Well, good morning. I'm uh, here to share God's Word with you this morning. My name is Dan, and uh, our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Hear God's Word. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Stan. Well, good morning, and welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. Uh, My name's Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to lead us now in a time of teaching where we unpack the scripture that Dan just read so wonderfully for us. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father God, I admit before you this morning that I am weak and feeble and often lack courage. I know that many of us in this room would Be quick to affirm that that is true of us as well. So God, this morning we are grateful that your power is perfected and manifested even in our weakness, and even more so in our weakness. 
And God, we pray this morning that we would see your power as we hear your word. That to our weak hearts this morning, you would speak in power. And God, would your spirit give us the boldness and the courageousness to live lives that respond fully to what you are calling us to this morning. Pray this in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, I'm going to be honest with you this morning, uh, if that's okay. This week has been one of the hardest weeks of my life. It's one of those weeks where maybe you've had these weeks where everything just seems like it takes twice as much effort to do. Have you had those moments where where every mundane and, and ordinary activity is just kind of colored by an underlying gloom and sadness? At times this week, I literally found myself unable to sleep with my mind racing. Uh, Other times, I noticed that I was zoning out of conversations, distracted. Uh, And honestly, sometimes I just started tearing up out of nowhere. Um, It was one of the hardest weeks. Have you ever had weeks like this? And if you let me be vulnerable for a minute, I would love to, to just share with you the moment that kind of decided how my week would go. It was fourth down and goal on the eight-yard line. The MVP of the league, Patrick or uh, Aaron Rodgers, was at the helm of the offense, and Packers head coach Matt Lafleur decided to kick a field goal. He kicked a field goal. Instead of taking a shot to tie up the game with a touchdown, he gave the ball back to the most accomplished quarterback in history, Tom Brady, who, by the way, has kind of a penchant for getting lucky calls to go his way. Deford, anybody? Right? That's kind of his thing. And he put, with that decision, the entire game in the hands of the Packers' shaky defense. Now, I'm not going to turn your nice morning at church into the rantings of a devastated Packers fan. And if you don't care about sports, the words I just said didn't mean anything to you anyway. And there are a lot of reasons the Packers lost. Uh, I named them all to Matt before the service. Uh, I, was, I was talking about it even more. There are a lot of reasons the Packers lost last week. But so many sports games are remembered for the decisions that coaches make at key moments, aren't they? In fact, being a coach in any sport is kind of all about making the right decision at the right moment about taking risks when risks need to be taken and playing it safe when playing it safe makes sense. Coaching is is all about making the call that has the greatest chance to yield the greatest reward. And if you've been following sports media and talk shows and talking heads throughout this past week, Coach LaFleur has been a topic of discussion as people dissect his decision. Did he play it safe in kicking a field goal when he should have taken a risk? Or did he simply take the wrong kind of risk at the wrong time? Or would we look at things differently if his decision had actually worked and he was rewarded with the win? These are the kind of conversations people are having. Now, this risk-reward dilemma is not only a sports phenomenon, right? Risk is an inescapable part of all of our lives. We, We intuitively weigh the potential risks and possible rewards of every decision we make, don't we? Whether it's an entrepreneurial endeavor or an investment strategy or an policy or the the choice of how we spend our Friday night, we're, we're constantly considering the risk involved. What do I stand to lose and what do I stand to gain from this 
decision. And ironically, the greatest risk to a football team, as we saw in Matt LaFleur, or to a business enterprise or a retirement portfolio, even to our very lives, our greatest risk may well be trying to avoid risk altogether. See, when it comes to the risk in our relationships, in our daily work, and yes, even in our spiritual growth and in our church, the greatest danger we face may well be playing it a little bit too safe. Jean Twinge, who's an author and cultural commentator, in her, her fascinating book, iGen, which kind of talks about the, the generation that's, that's grown up uh, with technology, which I think I'm included in somehow, uh, she discusses in that book how we're raising generations that are increasingly focused on safety and averse to taking any kind of risks. Here's what she says. She says, wanting to feel safe all of the time can also lead to wanting to protect against emotional upset. The concern with emotional safety is somewhat unique to iGen. That can include preventing bad experiences, sidestepping situations that might be uncomfortable, and avoiding people with ideas different from your own. You may have noticed that this is kind of the direction, and it's kind of her whole point of the book, this is the direction that our society is trending toward. And the same thing, honestly, is, is true and becoming increasingly true of the Western church as well. See, most churches around the world actually risk is part and parcel with being a Christian, right? There's an inherent risk to professing faith in Jesus. But in the Western church, we're kind of following that direction toward pursuing safety. And while we want to be at Christ community, we want to be a safe place in terms of not abusing power that's incredibly important to us, what we don't want is to become a safe place in the sense of becoming so comfortable that we're not taking any risks for the mission of Jesus. And one of the reasons for that is because of what Jesus highlights in, in the passage Dan read for us, which is that risk is necessary to be part of his kingdom. Not foolishness, but risk is necessary to be a part of his kingdom. Because in Jesus' eyes, as we're going to see through this parable, life in the kingdom is always risky business. Life in the kingdom is always risky business. And when I said that, you might have thought of, of Tom Cruise dancing in his underwear. Tried to find a picture that was appropriate for church. Couldn't. Uh, so just picture that. We're in a series right now that we're calling uh, Rediscovering Jesus' Kingdom. And in this series, we're exploring how the, the gospel writer Luke pictures Jesus, portrays him as, as the king that Israel had been, been waiting for and expecting. And in this series, we're kind of looking to understand what what kind of a king is Jesus? What does it look like when Jesus is king? And with that, what does it mean to live under the rule of this king and to live as a part of his kingdom? That's kind of our goal with this series. And where we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, uh, Jesus and his followers are just on the cusp of arriving at Jerusalem. They're just on the cusp of arriving at Jerusalem. They've been journeying for, honestly, most of the Gospel of Luke. A large chunk of Luke is this walk to Jerusalem, and Jesus is teaching and doing other things along the way. And they're finally here at their, at their end goal in arriving at Jerusalem. And Luke sets the scene for us well in verse 11. If you haven't, I welcome you to turn with me to uh, Luke 19. We'll start in verse 11. Here's what, here's what Luke says. As they, the followers, heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. 
and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the people who are with Jesus, who are about to get to Jerusalem, they're feeling the anticipation that, that something big is about to, to happen. See, see, they're expecting him in this moment as they go to Jerusalem to be crowned as king and to reclaim power to Israel and defeat Israel's enemies and, and God's enemies, which were the, the Roman people who were oppressing them. And, and, and what, how Luke describes this is interesting. It's kind of like when a kid, you know when a kid is, is just really excited about something, but you know they're going to be super bummed out because their expectations are just way too high for this thing. So you kind of have to talk them down, set the record straight, get the enthusiasm down a little bit so that they're not super bummed out uh, when they find out it's not what they think it's going to be. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Luke says that Jesus tells this parable to, to dampen their enthusiasm a little bit and to correct their misunderstanding of what it's going to look like for, for him to be king. And to do this, uh, he tells a parable, and it goes like this. Follow along with me. We're going to take some time to, to just understand what Jesus is saying with this story. Here's how it goes in verse 12. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So the story starts, there is a man uh, who is going away to become king. That's the, the plot. And I don't know what he has to do. I don't know why he has to go away to become king. I don't know if he has to like fight a dragon or just off the current king. Don't know what, they don't tell us what he's doing. Uh, but, but once he becomes king, he's going to come back and rule his newly acquired kingdom as king. That's the, the scene, uh, the setting of this story. And before this king goes away, he assembles his servants, the people who, who follow him, who, who support him, who want him to be king. He brings them all before him, and he gives them a task while he is gone. He, he gives them each money, uh, pretty cool. He gives them each one mino, which is about 100 days wages. So think like three months worth of salary is what he's giving them. He gives them each one mina, and, and he orders them to use that money to engage in business on his behalf until he comes back. That's, that's what he's, he's telling them to do. Now, now, like every story of everyone who's ever come to power ever, uh, there are people who don't really want this guy to be king. They're not a huge fan of him. Here's how Jesus continues. He says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So the king is actually facing great hostility from the majority of, of the people in his quest to become king. They don't like him. They don't want him to rule over them. It appears there's even a, a plan uh, to reject the legitimacy of his kingship. So he's facing some great opposition. But nevertheless, he ends up succeeding, and he returns having a kingdom to rule. And when he gets back, he wants to do just what he said he was going to do at the beginning, which is hear what his servants had done. How had they done with the mission he had given them in his absence? Uh, so he calls them in one by one. He's sitting probably in a nice leather chair or on the throne or whatever he just got to be king. Sitting there, calls him into his office one by one. First one comes in, and here's what happens. Luke says, the first came before him, verse 16, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. So he made a profit. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So the first guy did a great job, apparently. He, he took the mina, and apparently he did a lot of the king's business while he was gone, because in that business, he made a profit of 10 minas. So the king applauds him. 
right? For his faithfulness and his obedience. He rewards him with, with greater responsibility in his kingdom. He gives him authority over, over some of the regions he's just inherited as king. Like, you can have these cities, and, and you can rule and have authority over them. He did a great job, and the king is happy. Just keep reading. The next person comes before him. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. So not quite as good as ten minas, but still made some minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. So the second guy, he doesn't get quite the rave reviews that the first guy got, but it appears the king is just as pleased with his faithfulness, right, to the mission that he gave him. Even though he made less profit uh, with the money, he, he still was faithful to what he called him to do. So the king gives him authority over five cities in the new kingdom. So at this point in the story, we have two servants, uh, and both of them, even though the amount of their gain from the business they did is different, are equally lauded for their faithfulness to the king. They clearly did what he asked them to do, and they were both rewarded with responsibility and authority in this kingdom. And then the third guy comes. And don't worry, he doesn't do this for all ten people. We're not just going to be here unpacking people for forever. This is the last guy. The third guy comes, and here's what he says. He says, Lord verse 20. Here is your mina, which I have kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. So unlike the first two, the third servant didn't do anything with the money the king gave him. He just kept it in a handkerchief, uh, in a closet or something for, for safekeeping. And he outright tells us the reason he does this, is that he was afraid of the king. It was out of fear for this master. See, he thought of the king, the way he, he saw the king, was, was as a severe man. So he was afraid that either he would get mad at him if he tried to invest the, the minor or do the business and ended up losing it. He was afraid he'd get mad at him if he lost money. And he also was afraid that even if he gained money, the king would just take it all from him anyway. Which neither of these things we've seen is true in the first two people. So he just keeps it away in a handkerchief. Now, now, keeping a money away in a handkerchief or buried underground was actually a common practice in Jesus' day. Uh, we think today of burying money as something that people like Ron Swanson do because they don't trust banks. But many of his hearers might have actually thought this was a wise thing for the servant to do. And that's all fine and good if his master hadn't specifically told him to do something with it, right? He didn't just give him the gift so that he could sit on it and do nothing with it. He said, engage in business with this. So here's the master's response. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Not too happy. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. That's what you thought? Well, then why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. So the king, notice, he doesn't actually agree with the servant's assessment of him. He's not like, you know what? You're right. I'm a severe man. That makes a lot of sense. But he does use the servant's perspective against him. In other words, he's like, even if, let's just say, even if I was a severe man, if that's really what you thought, don't you think I'd be mad that you didn't obey my instructions and do business with my money? Like, isn't that something I'd be pretty severe about? And if you think I would have punished you for losing the money or taken it anyway, couldn't you at least have put it in the bank? So I could have gained something out of it? In fact, it's precisely because you didn't risk anything that I will show my sternness in judgment. Here's how it continues with these sobering words. Verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him 
and give it to the one who has the ten minus. And he said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. That doesn't seem very fair. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, it's worth noting here that the third servant doesn't deserve or receive the same punishment as the people who actively oppose the king. So there's kind of this middle ground of being all out for the king, all against the king, and they're just kind of here, right? That's the third servant. Uh, but he does lose what he was given. Unlike the other servants, he receives no responsibility and loses even the thing that he was given to you do business with. And that's how the story ends. Now, what do we make of this parable? Why does Jesus tell the story of a man who goes away, does whatever, fights a dragon or whatever, returns as king, assesses the faithfulness of his servants? What's the point of this? Well, in part, he's telling the parable to explain what he's doing in that very moment as God's chosen king. So he agrees with his followers that he is God's king, and as he approaches Jerusalem, he is God's king coming to God's people. And the people of Israel, for the most part, have not been faithful to him. They haven't taken all the things God had given them and used them to engage in the business God cares about. We see that in the very next scene where Jesus enters the temple and, and, and criticizes them for how they're using God's space. So he's explaining what he's doing in that moment, but he's also preparing his disciples for what's coming. See, remember, their hearts are beating with expectation as they approach Jerusalem, and they're envisioning King Jesus soon to be seated on the throne with a crown, and they're all sitting beside him, ruling with him. But Jesus knew otherwise. Jesus knew his followers were in for a pretty long wait before the full kingdom was here. So he's preparing them for a time when, when their king would be gone, when he would be not there anymore. And, and when they would be asked to engage in his business in his absence. He's also preparing them for the fact that he would come back and assess how they had done in this mission. And as I mentioned earlier, you may have picked up that, that that's also the period of time that we live in. So what he's saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, as we wait for him to come back as king, one of the main things Jesus wants his disciples and, and us to understand for this period of time where the king is away is this, that life in the kingdom is always risky business. Life in the kingdom is always risky business. So in our time remaining, I just want to ask this question. According to this parable, what does risky kingdom business look like? What does that even mean? Why is the business of Jesus' kingdom risky for his disciples and for us today? What, what does this parable have to say about that? Well, the first thing we see in this story is, is that risky kingdom business looks like associating your life with Jesus. It looks like associating your life with the king. In verse 15, you see the king coming back to, to do this reckoning scene, and the, the language in the ESV says, says that he wants to see what they had gained. Now, now, that what they had gained part is actually just one word in the Greek, and it, this is the only time it appears in the New Testament, so kind of hard to translate. Uh, but the primary meaning is a little obscured here because the primary meaning of that word is more how much business have you transacted? Now, if that's still confusing to you, uh, scholar Kenneth Bailey helps describe this in a, in a really helpful way. Read with me. Here's what he says. This is on behalf, on the perspective of, of the king. He says, are you willing to take the risk and openly declare yourselves to be my servants during my absence in a world where so many oppose me and my rule? Once I return, having received kingly power, it'll be easy to declare yourself publicly to be my servants. 
I am more interested in how you conduct yourselves when I am absent, and you have to pay a high price to openly identify yourself with me. See, this is really important for for understanding this parable because it's easy to read this and think that Jesus just wants to see how much can we produce? (laughs) Like how much profit can we make for him? And the more profit you get, the more he likes you and have that kind of a framework. But the king, he's not trying to see who makes the biggest profit, but who was faithful to him in a hostile environment? Who took the risk of publicly declaring their loyalty to him by engaging in his business when most other people hated him? It'd be like if this week, if I just spent the week selling Tampa Bay Buccaneers gear in the Arrowhead parking lot, how would that go for me? I would not be your pastor next week. I would not even be around next week. I don't even know where I'd end up, right? That's kind of where his followers are here. It's like, hey, you're in the Arrowhead parking lot and you're trying to sell Bucks gear. People hate you, so you're probably just going to hide that Bucks gear behind your back, put it in a handkerchief, and hope that no one knows. See, the expectation of the minas is that they would be stewarded publicly and productively. And that's where the third servant fell short. I mean, there's a chance he was even thinking, hey, if I sit on it and he returns, I won't have lost my money. But if he isn't successful, what if he doesn't actually become king? I also won't have lost anything else by being associated with him. See, there's a chance that maybe he delayed in engaging in any business because he didn't really trust that the man would actually come back as king. And friends, I think we have the same challenge today. See, how many people today in the world around us would say about Jesus, we don't want this guy ruling over us. We don't want this guy as our king. The opposition. And how many of us in that moment would Jesus say, it will be easy to declare yourself as loyal to me when I return. But are you willing to do that while I'm away? Maybe some of us this morning are hedging our bets with faith in Jesus. See, when people place bets on on something maybe for sports or something else, uh, maybe they're afraid that it's too much of a risk, so they sprinkle a little money on some other stuff so they can make that money back and at least break even. It's a way to cover all of your bases, and there's the gambling lesson you were hoping for at church this morning. Maybe we're hedging our bets with Jesus, minimizing the risk, making sure we have all our faces covered. Maybe you came to faith kind of out of that sense of just wanting to play it safe. Like, I don't know if this God thing's real, but man, it would, it would suck to be in hell. So uh, maybe I'll just kind of put my money over here just a little bit, just so I play it safe on that side too. So maybe, yes, we're associated with him, but quietly. That way we don't look like fools if it doesn't turn out to be true. Maybe you won't come back and I won't have put myself in danger. I just want to have our bases covered. And if I can be frank, one way that I see this happening a lot is, the, is, is in this kind of a, a setting that some of us, I think, are far more eager to identify with a popular cause than with the cause of Christ. We're far more eager to identify with a popular cause than the cause of Christ. Now, that popular cause might be a cause that Jesus cares about. It might be a good cause, but we kind of rather not attach his name to our endeavors just so people don't maybe ask questions or look at us differently for doing that on behalf of Jesus. But it's clear here that part of the risk of the kingdom of of Jesus is going public with our faith, making it a clear part of who we are. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean that you go home after church today and just write Jesus 20 times on your Facebook feed and say, there we go, I did it. It could mean that, maybe, maybe, I don't know. It could look a lot of different ways. I was talking to a woman in our congregation who, who mentioned one way that she's been doing this. That the last, uh, last year, as, as kind of when the pandemic started last March, she started doing something where she just started asking her coworkers if she could pray for them. She's just asking if she could pray for them. And her experience, and I'll say my experience too, is even, no matter, the most hostile people against Jesus usually don't say no when you ask if you can pray for them. They might not agree with it. They might not pray with you but they're at least somewhat open to being prayed for. And she said that she noticed some incredible things, ways that God moved just through saying, hey, can I pray for you? And praying for these people and ways that these people were touched. And it's just one simple way that she made it very clear that she was associated with Jesus. Maybe it looks like that for you. But being a part of the risky kingdom of Jesus means associating your life with the king. It also means stewarding your gifts from the king. Stewarding your gifts from the king. See, the nobleman, he distributes gifts to each servant, right? And when he gives them the gifts, as we've already talked about, he expects them to be used and stewarded and and shared and, and multiplied. And similarly, each of us have been given gifts from our king, Jesus. The gifts of our time, the gifts of the different talents he's given us, the gifts that the Spirit empowers us to do, the gifts of our resources, And he's the same expectation on those gifts he's given us. Part of the risk of the business of the kingdom is multiplying what you've been given. And here's where that's hard, at least for me. It's that when you step out and try to use a gift, there's always a chance for failure, isn't there? There's always a chance it doesn't work out or you make a mistake. But the picture we get here is that the king would have been happy even if the last servant's mina had just made a few cents as long as he did something with it. And maybe you're here this morning and you've delayed in taking risks, using what you have for the purpose of the kingdom, because like the servant, you're, you're concerned about the risk of failing, of making mistakes, of losing something along the way. Maybe, you know, risk always sets us up for, for losing something, and maybe just like the servant, we're, we aren't convinced that Jesus is a generous rewarder. We think he is a severe man, a severe judge, and he'll punish me if I lose it, or if I mess it up, so better to just play it safe and not do anything altogether. Have you ever felt that way? Well, if that's you, and I've been there, here's how scholar Arlen Holtgren encourages those of us who are concerned about this failure or punishment aspect. Here's what he says, talking about this passage. He says, when it comes to serving Christ, one should be bold and not be afraid of risks. Why? The words of promise from Jesus inviting disciples into the joy of his kingdom are meant to be heard by all who do not worry too much about securing their own lives, but get on with lives of self-abandon and witness, knowing that the grace of God in Christ will more than compensate for any mistakes they might make. See, this passage is highlighting the generosity of the king. He isn't a severe man. He's generous. He's even merciful. He rewards those who are faithful to him and steward his gifts well. And those that use their gifts, they will be rewarded. Now, this is somewhere that we also need a lot of clarity because there are a lot of Christian circles, a lot of churches today, that'll say that the reward for faithfulness in this life is more comfort and ease and faithfulness in this life. And friends, that is not true. That's not the picture we get here. The picture we get in this story is that the reward is greater responsibility and stewardship in the kingdom of God. The reward is not more comfort and ease, 
but more responsibility. And the more we anticipate this reward, the more we remember the grace of our King, the more courage and boldness we will have to take risks in using our gifts. Because he isn't going to punish you for taking a risk and coming up short. All he wants you to do is have the courage to step out in faith and use what he has given you for the mission of his kingdom. What, what might he be calling you to use that he has given you? So risky kingdom business looks like associating your life with Jesus. It looks like stewarding your gifts from Jesus. And the last thing is it looks like conducting your work for the king. Conducting your work for the king. See, the emphasis in this, in this passage is not about time. It's not about, hey, you have this much time, get as much done as possible. While there is a little bit of truth to that, the focus here very clearly is more on conducting business in, in such a way that Jesus is king. So not getting as much as possible, but everything you do, do it like Jesus is king and you're a citizen of his kingdom. And a large part of this kind of kingdom living takes place where God has placed you to do his kingdom business the majority of your week. Your vocational calling and your family and your work, both paid, unpaid. Here's how the Theology of Work commentary explains this passage. They say the point is that acknowledging Jesus as king requires working toward his purposes in whatever field of work you do. So let me ask you, how are you working with the kingdom in mind in your Monday life? Both in the, the work that you do, in your vocational calling, and also in advancing the mission of, of other things that are important to Jesus, like the risky efforts of evangelism and justice. How are you working with the kingdom in mind? If you joined us last fall uh, for our virtual Common Good Conference, then you saw Andy Crouch, who's an author and a leader of, of a ministry called Praxis, uh, share an incredible story of exactly what it looks like to conduct your work for the king. He told the story of someone he knew who was an entrepreneur, so already talk about a risky job, right? An entrepreneur. And he had uh, realized last March, kind of as COVID hit and he was losing some finances, that he owed a debt to another company that he probably wouldn't be able to pay and that threatened him to maybe go out of business. And he was worried. And then out of nowhere, the guy who owned the other company called him. And he called him and said, you don't owe me anything. I'm completely forgiving that debt. What a sacrifice. Talk about a risk on his end, right? And the person who received the forgiveness was so touched and so moved, and he would just was beside himself. He was like, what? Why would you do that? And the man responded, listen, I'm a Christian, and I believe that it's important to take sacrifices for the good of others. And what's crazy about that story, and remarkable, is that that guy who received the forgiveness had actually just become a Christian a couple months before that. And so in his first two months of being a follower of Jesus, he sees firsthand tangibly what it looks like for someone to sacrifice, to take a risk for the good of other people. And that's what it looks like to conduct your work for the king. How are you working with the kingdom in mind on your Monday life? Risky kingdom business looks like association of your life with the king. It looks like stewarding your gifts from the king, and it looks like working, contributing your work to the king. So question of course, where are you playing it safe with Jesus? Where in your life right now are you playing it safe with Jesus? This is a question that has really, I've been wrestling with personally deeply this week. The subtitle of this question could be, how are you putting Jesus in a handkerchief, if you want to think of it that way. Where are you playing it safe with Jesus? 
If I'm honest, one of the reasons that I often play it safe and delay in, in getting on with our king's business is that personally, I just want to have all the information first. Is anyone else there with me? Like, I want to do everything perfectly right away. I want to have all the information and just make the most calculated choice possible, the safest choice. And if I can't have all the information and do everything right the first time, I often just don't do anything at all. I'm paralyzed. But friends, discipleship doesn't work that way. Discipleship can't wait for us to figure out the best possible option and maximize it to the best of its ability, to take in all the information and make the safest possible decision. No, discipleship is just a series of simple steps of risky obedience. Discipleship is just a series of simple steps of risky obedience. It's doing just the next thing necessary to seek God more deeply. So what's the next risk that Jesus is asking you to take while he's away? Maybe the next risk you need to take is going more public with your faith in some way, making it clear that you're associated with him. Maybe your next risk that you need to take is seeking out trusted voices in your life to help you identify your gifts, to expand your, your list of, of gifts. Or maybe to find an outlet of a gift you know you have that you've never really used, or at least haven't used for the work of Jesus' kingdom. Maybe there's a risky kingdom move that Jesus is calling you to take in your line of work or your family. But where are you playing it safe with him? What's the next risk he's asking you to take while he is away? Because friends, life in the kingdom is always risky business. And I know, I've experienced it, that risk inevitably opens us up to hurt or loss. It opens us up to the potential of failure. But the reward we anticipate and the grace of our king is powerful enough to cover every mistake of those who live under his rule and every loss. It is this king who gave himself up for us, taking the greatest risk of all. So to live for him, even when it comes with risks, is always worth it. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, I close praying the same thing I prayed when we started our time together. That your power would be made perfect in us even when we are weak, even when we are vulnerable. God, would you give us the courage and the wisdom and the boldness to take the risks that you are calling us to in all wisdom and practicality and in all faith, even when it seems impractical. God, we pray for that kind of boldness. We pray that you would empower us to associate our lives with you, to steward the gifts you've given us, to conduct our work for you. God, help convict us and to see where we're playing it safe with our faith in you. And God, I pray that that wouldn't be a conviction that leads to, to shame, but a conviction that propels us towards you, towards the foot of your cross, towards the grace and power you give us each and every day. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen.